0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Earlier this week, we were having some uh, trouble with our our TV, and I had to do some, some troubleshooting. And, you know, people are at different places when it comes to troubleshooting technology. Okay, like there's different levels Um, Some of you are like, you can, I mean, you're kind of on the techie side. If it's broken, your family and your friends, they call you and you're the one to fix it. Some of you are pretty much uh, completely helpless. Like there's really nothing you can, like you can't fix it. Um, a computer and a toaster, like, you know, they're both complicated. You're not exactly sure why they're that different, but fixing one or the other, you couldn't do. And then most people are kind of somewhere in the middle. So anyway, I was trying to fix my, my uh, TV and try and troubleshoot what was going on. And I was taken back to how much simpler it was to troubleshoot a television when I was a kid. See, I was a kid in the eighties and nineties. And so like some of you, like if you're Gen Z, like just let me explain a couple of things. Televisions, they used to be thick, okay? They were like a large box, all right, and um, they sometimes even wood paneled around the sides, all right, and to troubleshoot a television, let's say um, you had gotten up off the couch and changed the channel, okay, and it was a little fuzzy, and that was a channel that usually was not fuzzy. There was a simple way that you troubleshooted the issue. There were these two sticks that came off the top and you would just move them around, okay? And most people just knew how to just move them around just right, okay? Maybe one family member had to stand in a certain way on the other side of the room, okay? But you could troubleshoot it by moving the antenna on the top. If you were super techie, like then, like you're really advanced, you would take tinfoil and you would put it on the sticks. Like that means like those people became like computer programmers one day, okay? Like they're super advanced. But even for the people that were not advanced, like you could, like there was actually like a caveman version, what you could do, you could just slap the side of the television, all right? I actually remember slapping the side of the television and it worked. So like caveman version worked, all right? So I'm troubleshooting my my television now in, in 2023, all right? And like the most people, like the moving the antenna is like Googling it, like most people just go on, like how do I fix this television? Other people go in like the expert settings. Like have you ever wandered through the expert settings? Like if you're like me, I'm like, I'm not supposed to be in this section, okay? There's words in here, I don't even know what they mean, all right, that they're describing. And then, but there's also still a caveman version, like, and that's me, like, I'm smacking the remote, like, why isn't this fixing the television, all right? It's like, there's different versions of troubleshooting. Sometimes we feel like the, uh, more, more uh, a- a- adept at doing it than others, sometimes we, we don't really know what's wrong. But I bring this up because there's a lot of different parts of our life that sometimes they just don't feel like they're quite right. And we can't always put our finger on like, what is a little bit off uh, about this part of my life? It could be, it could be anything. It could be um, my marriage. Maybe you say, look, I I don't know just something. I, I, I know that God talks about marriage. I just don't know why things don't feel totally right. Or maybe it's your relationship to your circumstances right now. And you're like, I know that like, I'm not supposed to be where I'm at, but just something's off. I don't know how to fix it. Or, or maybe it's your relationship to your finances or some kind of sin issue in your life. And you're like, look, just something's off and I don't know how to troubleshoot it. But sometimes the problem is actually runs even deeper and it's just, and and maybe it's actually affecting one of these categories, but there's a deeper level of troubleshooting. You say, look, things just don't feel right spiritually it's just off. I don't even know. Maybe you've like, I've never felt it was right. Or maybe it was right for a season, but now it's not right. And I just, I I don't know what it is, but just something doesn't feel right. Something feels off. Something feels grainy or fuzzy. I just can't see clearly. And you say, look, I just need help. I don't know how to troubleshoot what I'm walking through right now uh, spiritually. And I want to take you through a text that Jesus uh, taught. And it's it's really profound. He gives these, these illustrations that can help us troubleshoot what's going on in our lives spiritually, and often that is feeding right into some of these other areas of our lives as well. So here's what I want you to do. If you can open up with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you have a Bible, if you brought a physical Bible, go ahead and open it. If you don't, I want to encourage you to open it on on an app on your phone. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14. This is an episode in Jesus' ministry where he gets asked a question, and let's see how this plays out. Matthew 9 verse 14. Here's what it says. When the disciples of John came to him saying, or excuse me, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now we're going to pause there. Let's get our bearings on what's going on here. Um, There's a couple different groups operating in this text. People who are asking the question are the disciples of John the Baptist. They reference the Pharisees. There's a good chance that there were some Pharisees in the crowd. And then they reference the disciples of Jesus. And, and there's some really important distinctions between these three groups that helps us really understand this text. Let's break this out. The first category that is the probably the most familiar, the Pharisees. We, um, If you've read any parts of the Gospels, the Pharisees always pop up, and they're pretty much always the bad guys. There is a couple uh, exceptions um, to this, but they are pretty much the bad guys. Who are the Pharisees? It's actually ironic that they're the bad guys because they are are the religious elite. They pour over the Old Testament law. They they pour over the old covenant, it's sometimes called, that God made with his people through Moses, you know, the the law. You remember Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets them on these two tablets and also gets the rest of the law, not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He gets their civic law, like their civil law, how they operate as a nation. He also gets their ceremonial law, how they're supposed to worship, uh, the, the, the sacrifices that they're supposed to make and the feasts and fasts that they're supposed to do. He gets all the law and the Pharisees pour over Over this law, and they do it meticulously. Well, that seems like a good thing. Like, why are these the bad guys? In fact, they they definitely turn out to be the bad guys. They are the ones that end up stirring up the crowd. They plot against Jesus, get him arrested on false charges, and stir up the crowd to have Jesus executed. Like, they're not just like kind of the bad guy. They end up being the ones used, humanly speaking, to have Jesus executed on a cross. They're the bad guys. What's going on? They're pouring over the law. How are they bad guys? And um, they're addressed in a couple different ways, but Jesus nails it one time when he's speaking to the Pharisees. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus shows great compassion to these Pharisees. He'll meet with them. He'll go to their house. He'll talk with them. He will answer their questions. He, He shows them compassion and love, but he's very direct with them as well. And there's one time where he just basically calls them out. He says, here's the bottom line with you Pharisees. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. So imagine a tomb with a nice paint job on the outside. It looks nice on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. It's like a dish, he says. So imagine you get a bowl and it's dirty on the inside of the bowl And instead of cleaning the inside, you actually just clean the outside and put food on the inside. Like, if anything, do it the opposite way, right? He said, the problem is you're all cleaned up on the outside, but inside you're dead. And here's what's exposed with the Pharisees. And they kind of represent a whole category of just dead religion. It's all external it's doing good things on the outside, but there's just nothing going on on the inside. It's not real. It's hypocritical. It's just externally looking good, but internally looking dead. And so out of that kind of framework, you see why the, the, they weren't really very loving. They were actually very critical. They were very self-righteous. They're very judgmental. They're very holier than thou. They compared themselves constantly. They were jealous of people like Jesus. They were. It was all external religion with nothing on the inside. That's group one. Group two, then we have the disciples of John the Baptist. Now let's get our our hands around this group. Remember, John the Baptist is a really, really big deal. John the Baptist was, uh, Jesus said, hey, well, John the Baptist starts preaching in the wilderness, and everybody knew. He was super famous. Everybody knew who John the Baptist was. They all go out to the wilderness where he's preaching. They all hear him preaching. He's preaching repentance. He's telling them to to clean up their lives, and so they get baptized as a symbol that they're turning their lives around, that they're repenting, and they're, they're, they're cleaning up their lives, and Jesus says, you guys went out. He says, everyone went out to see John the Baptist preach. Did you go out? to see a prophet and they're like yeah i mean he was quite a prophet he says no, no he wasn't just any prophet this is one of the greatest men who ever lived see john the baptist this is how big of a deal john the baptist is. he wasn't just a prophet he was a prophet the other old testament prophets said was going to come they prophesied about him coming as a prophet that's how big of a deal john the baptist was he was like the final prophet foretold to point to jesus Right before the Messiah came, they would they prophesied in the Old Testament that one final crescendoing prophet will come. He'll prepare the way for the Messiah and will point to the Messiah. And when you think about the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, Testament means covenant. The Old Covenant, it's all pointing towards a Messiah, and one final crescendo, you've got this prophet named John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. And one day, as he's baptizing people, Jesus walks by, and John the Baptist says, That's him, he's here and tying in all of the old covenant, he doesn't just say, there's Jesus, the Messiah. He actually says, there is the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. I mean, he's bringing in the Messiah. He's bringing in the sacrificial system. There is the ultimate one. All of this has been building towards. John the Baptist is a really big deal. He is like the crescendo of the old covenant waiting for the Messiah. So you've got John the Baptist disciples and assuming because the idea of a disciple is you're becoming like the person that you're following. These disciples were they believed when John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Messiah. That's why they're asking this question. They had this, they are a great version of what the old covenant, maybe one of the best versions of what the old Testament living, the old covenant following the law was supposed to look like. They not just followed the law externally. What does the law say? In, all the way back in Deuteronomy, love the Lord, your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's The true Old Testament law is not just external, it's from the inside out. That is the true following the law. And so you've got these men following John the Baptist, who's this crescendo, and you've got these two groups of people. You've got the Pharisees that are trying to prove themselves to be righteous. Uh, through their external uh, actions. And then you've got John the Baptist, who's this true version of the old covenant, which is, okay, God, we are your people. You've, you've, you have saved us from the land of Egypt, and now these are the things you've asked us to do to be righteous, so we are going to do, because we love you, it's not just external, because we love you, we are going to do these things, and we know we're going to fail, so we've got to go do sacrifices and get cleaned up, but these are the things we have to do in order to be righteous. If we do these things, we follow your law, we'll be blessed, we'll have shalom. If not, then we won't be blessed, and so we've got to follow these works, but it's not just these empty works, it's not just works to impress others people. It's, I'm going to do these works. I want to be blessed. I want to fight shalom. I want to be righteous. I want to be justified in your sight. I want to do that because I love you. It it is true following the old covenant law from the inside out. Now these two are, you got John the Baptist disciples, you got the Pharisees. Now here's the crazy thing, and I think this is where, where the question's coming from. John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees do not usually find themselves on the same side. It wasn't just Jesus who called out the Pharisees. John the Baptist called them a brood of vipers. Uh, they come out to just, they're not coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist. They're jealous of him. They're skeptical of him. They don't know what to do with him, but they come out to spy on him and he calls them out as a, as a brood of snakes, a bunch of serpents. That's a, especially thinking the Old Testament symbolism of the serpent. That's a pretty rough saying. And so now let's get to this question. You've got John the Baptist's disciples, and they're like, well, we're fasting. And they're fasting. The Old Testament law prescribed one fast every year at the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees know, were known for, for fasting twice a week. John the Baptist's disciples probably had some way that they were fasting. The Pharisees were fasting just to look good on the outside. John the Baptist's disciples are probably fasting because they really love Jesus and they're or love love God and they're, they're pursuing the Messiah and they're, it's coming from the inside. But they're fasting and the Pharisees are fasting. And now they see this third group, Jesus' disciples, and they're like, wait a minute, why are we doing what they're doing and we're different from what your disciples are doing? I think they're coming from like, hey, this makes me nervous. We're usually on side Jesus. Right now we're here with the Pharisees. Jesus, help us understand why don't your disciples fast? You follow me on the tension here? Okay. Jesus is going to answer this. And Jesus is going to answer this the way he often did. He's going to tell three illustrations. It's like these are like seeds planted in his disciples that one day when they have the Holy Spirit, it like all comes together. And so he's going to plant these these three illustrations in answer to that question. Let's pick it up in verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn As long as the bridegroom is with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. All right, let's pause there. That's illustration number one. Illustration number one is this. Why aren't my disciples fasting? He said, um, when the groom is with them, I want you to imagine they did their weddings a little bit different. I want you to imagine a whole wedding feast and you're waiting for the groom to arrive at the wedding feast. So the feast can begin and the groom finally arrives. There is, you've got the bride and groom are now together. You have the family and the friends. They have a long feast that may last for days in the ancient context. I mean, it is a Big deal. He says, The groom is finally here. You've been waiting for the groom who's been preparing a place for his bride. He finally shows up. The festivities can begin. What is Jesus saying? The groom is now here. It's not a time for mourning. There's something different that's happening. A person has arrived. We know from the testimony of Scripture who that groom is it's Jesus, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, God referred to him. This is what's so crazy. I mean, this is, this is very rich imagery. The Old Testament, God referred to himself as being betrothed to Israel. He was the bridegroom. So if Jesus is insinuating that the groom is there in their midst, it's not just the Messiah, it's God himself in the flesh as the Messiah, the groom has finally coming. It's not just that the Messiah finally came that they've been waiting for, it's who the Messiah actually is. God himself in the flesh as the Messiah. Not like a, a Samson. Not like a Gideon, not like a Joshua, not like a Moses. It's not another, not like a Deborah. It's not like another leader that God rises up and anoints. God himself is on the scene. It's a time for rejoicing. But then he says, and this is not a part of an ancient wedding ceremony, but the day will come when the groom is taken up from them. And then they will mourn. That word uh, taken up is the same word Matthew will later use when uh, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, take up your own cross and follow after me. The day will come when Jesus would be, the Messiah would be crucified on a cross, dead and buried. And for those three impossibly devastating days, Jesus was taken away from them. But then he rose again on the third day appeared to them and then ascended. And even when he ascended into heaven, he said, I will be with you always to the end. So he says, why are my disciples not fasting? He says, well, the groom's finally here. That's one. What else did he say? Let's pick it up in verse 16. Illustration number two, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made okay. Here's the illustration. You have an old uh, piece of cloth. Maybe it's an old pair of jeans, and you want to put a patch on that old pair of jeans because there's a tear. He says, if you took a brand new piece of cloth that had not already been shrunk, and you put it on that on that tear, and you make it, you sew it in really tight, then you wash it, and the new patch shrinks. It's already sewed in tight, and then it shrinks. It not only will tear away, but it actually will then make the original tear even worse. In other words, illustration one, Jesus is the, is the groom. Illustration two, Jesus is the patch. You can't just take Jesus on. Jesus is cut from a different cloth. You can't take Jesus and just bolt him on. You can't just sew it on. To the old piece of cloth, it will cause a worse tear. Now, here's what's interesting. In that verse, the word tear is used twice. Um, It it says if um, if you put this cloth and it tears away, then it says the tear will be worse. The first tear away part is the same word used in the previous verse of the groom being taken up or take up your cross. The patch is taken up. But then it says, and then the tear left behind is worse. That word for tear is the Greek word schisma, which is where we get the, the word schismatic or schism. It means a often applied to a fracture between people, a, a, um, a breaking between people, brokenness between people, some kind of fracture between relationships often used in that way. If you try to just sew Jesus on the old piece of cloth, worse tear in the end will be left behind. It's illustration number two. Number three, and by the way, after this third illustration, he's done. He just gives three illustrations, conversation over. Doesn't explain them. He leaves it for uh, the Holy Spirit to take these illustrations and in, in time as the church is being birthed to understand. Here's, here's um, illustration number three. Let's pick it up in 17. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Here's illustration number three they would uh, store wine in literal skins. So imagine taking leather skins, sewing it into like a bladder, like a, you can probably envision like a leather, like maybe canteen size um, bladder, or even they would sometimes put it in larger um, uh, larger bladders made of, of skin, of leather, and they could pour wine in there. And if it was a new skin and you poured new wine in, because new wine is going to expand and as it ferments as the new wine is going to expand so you need to put new wine in new wine skins the the new skins will expand with the wine if you put if you take an old wine skin it's hardened it's dried it doesn't expand And you try and put new wine in old wineskins as the new wine expands. It's going to expand beyond, want to expand beyond the shape of the old wineskin. It's going to expand beyond that. It's going to burst open the old wineskin. And in the end, you're going to lose both the wine and the wineskin. You follow the illustration? Okay. Okay. Jesus uses this as the, as the third illustration. Okay, what is Jesus saying with these three things? Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the new patch that repairs. Jesus is the new wine poured into the old wineskins. Jesus is the groom, which means that there's a time for celebration. There will be a time when he's taken up, and it'll be a time of mourning, but the groom is on the scene, something new. Jesus is the patch. He's cut from a different cloth. You can't just sew Jesus on to an old piece of cloth. It will cause a greater rip, a greater tear. Jesus is the new wine. When he's poured in, he's going to expand far beyond where the old wine skins were and burst it out. So if you try to put the old, the new wine in old skins, you'll lose both. Uh, what is Jesus saying? There's so much rich symbolism in here. What is Jesus saying? Short, what Jesus is saying is he's looking at these two frameworks. You've got these Pharisees, empty religion. You've got a purely external religion. You've got John the Baptist's disciples, faithful following the old covenant from the inside out, living the, 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 the prescribed law to be righteous before God, doing the works God commanded before God. He looks at both of these and he says, there's something brand new here. It doesn't fit in either of these categories. It's neither of these things. It's something brand new. It starts with a person has shown up the Messiah, God in the flesh. And with the arrival of this person, it changes everything. It's not adding this person to a former framework. It'll cause tearing. It's not adding Jesus to this old this, this old wineskins. He'll, he'll burst out of it. There is something completely brand new. Think about these three categories with me because a lot of times in our lives when it comes to troubleshooting our lives. We have things in our life that aren't right and a lot of times they they go back to something spiritual Um, or sometimes what we're just trying to troubleshoot is we're like, look, spiritually speaking, Things are just not right. Like I, I, I there are seasons where I felt on fire and I felt like I, I felt God's love, but now I just, things don't feel right. Or there are things that I feel like there's these promises that I'm supposed to see lived out in my life. Or or maybe you just say, look, I've never totally understood it. Like I know that there's some people that are really, they're like all in on Jesus. Like I I think my life is pretty good. I just want to add a little religion. I feel like that, you know, is a way to be well-rounded or sometimes I'm going through a rough spot. I kind of show up at church again or on holidays or something. I just sprinkle a little Jesus, a little spirituality. and I. And I I think I'm by and large good. I don't feel, maybe you say, I just don't feel like I'm one of those that's like all in. Like it's just like, it's not, I'm not like that. I I live my life. I have a little bit of spirituality in my life, but you know, I don't see like an overwhelming joy and I don't see all this great things happening, but I'm just living my life doing the best I can. Let's troubleshoot for a second and let's look at these three different categories because um, sometimes that, that helps us. So you've got, sometimes we operate just like the Pharisees. And we take the things of the Bible and really what's what's in operation is like, okay, I'm going to do enough that I look spiritual enough or I feel spiritual enough. I want to make sure that I look good. I want people to think I'm good. I I want people to to think I'm good or I want to feel like I'm a good enough person. But inside, there's just really not a heart that absolutely loves God. Maybe it's from guilt. Like, hey, I, I grew up a certain way and I feel guilty. I know that, you know, my, maybe my grandma's already passed on, but I remember how she, you know, I kind of feel guilty. I'm supposed to do these things. But in the end, I'm doing very Christian-looking things, very Bible-looking things. But if I'm honest, inside, there's not just like a love and craving for the presence of God. I just don't know that I, I love God. Or maybe it's like, no, I, I'm a mature Christian. I held a, a position in the church that I used to go to. I held a position in my church here now and I'm a, I'm a small group leader or I'm a ministry leader. or I mean, I've got to be like a good person. And so because I feel that pressure, like I'm, I'm trying to do all the right things and check all the boxes. I'm going to try and cross all the T's, dot all the I's spiritually because I've got to show that I'm a good person. But if I'm honest inside, is there a, fire for Jesus? Maybe you say, I, I don't really feel that fire for Jesus. And maybe there's this lurking feeling that a lot of the things I'm doing externally, I'm doing for me or for others, and I'm not even really doing it for him. But then there's another category. And you say, no, I love God. This is like John the Baptist disciples. I, I love God but I I also, but you operate very much like the old covenant. And you say, look, I love God, and I know that he's commanded me to do these things. And so like I, I've got to do X, Y, and Z. I've got to make sure I do X, Y, and Z because I want God to bless me. I want God to, to approve of me. I want, I want to please God. And some, some weeks, like I, I love God. And some weeks, I know God's upset with me. Some weeks, I know God's mad at me. Um, or some weeks, things don't go right. And I know that he's not blessing me. And I know why. It's because I've not done my devotions as consistently as I should. Or I've not gone to church as much as I should. Or I'm not praying as hard as I should. And I feel the guilt. And so you know I, I dig in. And there's some things spiritually I do. They're like, kind of my modern version of those sacrifices there's there's things I do and then I feel right with God again but I I want to please God and I know that I have to keep doing all these things to please God and so maybe you fall into this category just like John the Baptist disciples but there's something inside of you you feel like you're always clawing and climbing and never quite getting there can we troubleshoot it for a second because here's what Jesus said He said, there's something completely brand new here. It's not like the Pharisees and it's not like the old covenant. There is a brand new covenant that happened and it started the moment Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh arrived. There's something brand new. The old covenant says that that we all deserve death by our sin and that we have to do all of these things to, to escape death and to get Shalom. But when Jesus came, Jesus perfectly followed the old covenant and then he died and here's what Jesus said, your old sinful life, Dies with him, and when he rose up, you are rising up with brand new life, completely taken care of. There's something, it's a whole different category now. Your old life is dead. You have risen in a whole new kind of life. We say, well, what is that whole new kind of life? You're not just saved. You're not just going from uh, Judaism to Christianity. It's not just that you're saved. You are an entirely new creation. You are something completely different. Alien, not just alien to another religion. You are alien to this universe. You are a new entity, a new creation. You say, well, what what does that mean? How am I a new creation? You have been adopted into God's family. Jesus being like the older brother, the firstborn, you've now been adopted as a son or daughter of God as an heir like Jesus destined to reign with Jesus, you've been adopted into his family. And so this is what it means in Romans chapter eight. It says it, there is now there's doesn't matter. It's Jesus having perfectly fulfilled all the law for us. And then our our lawlessness dying with Jesus and Jesus perfect righteousness being attributed to us. Now what that means is there is no condemnation, no guilt, No shame, no past sins that are affecting. He does not treat you like your sins deserve. He treats you as if you had the righteousness of Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, as we continue to live, then when we see things happen in our lives that don't happen exactly the way we wanted them, we rest in the fact that if we're in Christ, it's not that we're being punished. All of these things are working together for those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. It says, Who could possibly separate you from the love of God? Nothing. Not your sin. But God is so holy. He's so holy that he took your sin onto himself and exhausted it, all the wrath for your sin on the cross. Is your sin and my sin a big deal? If it's against a holy God, it is a bigger deal than we imagine, but it's still not more powerful than the cross. Your sin is so thoroughly paid for on the cross that your sin, not... Not not sin, not even life or death can separate you from the love of God. You, you, it's not even the same category as the, as the old covenant. It's not, even, it's not that I'm justifying myself by following the rules correctly. It is Jesus has done everything that's needed for me to be perfectly justified before God. Perfectly justified everything that's needed Uh, to the degree we no longer go to a temple where the presence of god is to get cleaned up you've been so thoroughly cleaned by the work of jesus that he places the presence of god the holy spirit in you and you've been made into a temple it's a completely different paradigm So look at these three categories. You say, okay, let's troubleshoot life. How come sometimes I don't feel like this? Let's look at the first one. Because sometimes, even though we're in the new covenant, we've been saved by Jesus. Or or maybe we've not totally understood. We're still operating like a Christian version of the old covenant where I'm trying to prove myself to the world or prove myself to God by my works. But if we're in the new covenant where I'm already justified by the work that God's done. I've already had God's love and God's, God's acceptance because of the work that Jesus did. See, sometimes what's off is we still think it's about a list of spiritual chores rather than it being about a person. It's about the groom. That's what it's about. It's not about, how did I do this week? Let me look through my Christian chores. Oh, I was not as good as I could have been, and I'll work a little harder next week. No, it's about, let me look inside. Does my heart ache for the groom? Does my heart, is it after Jesus? Is Jesus the centerpiece of my life? Is it, is it that I'm pursuing the person of Jesus? Is, is that what it's about? Is it about a list of chores, or is it all about following Jesus, the Messiah? Sometimes the problem is inside, we've forgotten that it's all about the groom. Here's the second thing we can diagnose. Sometimes a sign that we're operating from the old covenant is when we try to bolt on Jesus into our life, we find that it creates a greater schism between me and my brothers and sisters that Jesus is supposed to unify together. Remember, Jesus brings all types of people from all types of backgrounds, whether Jew or Gentile. He brings uh, male, female, he brings us all together in unity. But sometimes when we're still operating it, like I've got to do exactly the right things to be justified by God rather than free to pursue Jesus with all I've got, that ends up, if I try and bolt Jesus onto an old legalistic way of, of, of living, it creates greater divide. I had a conversation this past week um, with my kids about Halloween. And uh, they were asking me because they, they have some other Christian friends and um, their, their families Uh, handle Halloween differently than, than we do. And he's like, you know, there's, it's like, they were saying, Hey, there's some families that they don't carve pumpkins and they, they don't do candy and uh, they don't dress up. And, but we, you know, we eat candy at Halloween and we, you know, we're on the pumpkin carving side of it. And, and they're like, you know, um, is that bad? I mean, should we carve pumpkins? And I said, well, I, I like carving pumpkins. I think it's fun. And they're like, they're like, okay, but you know, is it, is it, you know, is it bad to carve pumpkins? I said, well, I mean, pumpkin's a vegetable, I think. I mean, it might be a fruit, but it's at least a gourd for sure. I mean we could we could carve a watermelon like if you would feel more comfortable with that. but in my mind, like it's, it's a gourd. Like we carve it because it's fun and I look for an opportunity to throw the innards at you at some point. Like that's, that's why we, we carve pumpkins and we talked about why we did I said, but, when we, but yeah, but we're outside and we're in the neighborhood. I said, well, here's why we do that. It's a great opportunity to meet our, our neighbors and get to know people we might otherwise not get to meet, show them love, build relationship, maybe invite them to church. But then I said this to them, but other families handle Halloween very different. And that's okay. Because as long as every Christian family is running after Jesus with all they've got, we're not going to let these particulars divide us. Because if you live a legalistic, like I've got to follow all these things precisely, rather than the freedom of running after the groom, then when we bolt on Jesus, we put that patch on that old covenant thinking, then we divide. Oh, I can't believe you do this. and I can't believe you do this. That group over there does this and they're completely missing it. Whereas he's unifying all of us just running hard after the groom. And it may look a little bit different and that's okay. But sometimes that's, let's troubleshoot. That's a sign that maybe we we're trying to put the new cloth on the old cloth. But here's the third one. The third one is Jesus is the new wine. And if you, you can tell that the new wine is being poured into the old wineskin. Because the old wineskin, it can't expand to the degree that Jesus will call it to. See, following after Jesus does not mean, please hear me on this. Following after Jesus does not mean we will live less righteous lives. It is a righteous living based on a different framework. It's righteous living based on answering the call when Jesus says, follow me. In fact, the new wine expands and bursts out of the old wineskins. In fact, it, it takes us far beyond what the old wineskins could do. The Pharisees, they would ask a question. Um, they, they would ask the question like this. They'd say, okay, um, what do I have to do to look good or to feel good? The, the, new, the, the, um, the old covenant that right, was rightfully, um, right, rightfully lived, they'd say, how can I live what God requires? But the new covenant says, I will do anything for Jesus it's not what looks right what feels right what makes me feel holy it's not what does god require it's everything for jesus i will do anything for jesus see these disciples jesus disciples they didn't just fast they gave their lives and they said every day whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of Jesus. They wouldn't just fast. One of them standing in that, in that group, Andrew, Andrew would be crucified to a cross for three days. And for the first two, while he still had the strength, he preached about Jesus down from his cross. See the new wine will burst out of the old wineskins don't try and contain following Jesus to the old wineskins. It will hold you back. Run wild after Jesus and take up your cross. See, being Jesus disciple, being Jesus mathetase, it is an all or nothing. It's an all or nothing situation. We don't say what makes me look good. We don't say what does God require. We say it is all yours, one hundred percent i don't just simply say well it looks bad if i don't do my devotions i don't say well um god how much i mean just tell me how much do i need to do 20 minutes in every morning or is it like 10 minutes every other morning? Is it one hour once a week? Tell me what you require. No, the person who's got the new wine poured in says, I'm going to spend every waking moment with Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus at work. I'm going to be a Jesus in my home. I'm going to be Jesus in the car. I'm going to be with Jesus every moment. And every moment I can get exclusively with Jesus. How could anything tear me away from the presence of Jesus? It's anything for Jesus. See, the the, the the Pharisee says, I'll be generous when I get when it when it looks good. What, what do I give to financially that looks good or makes me feel like a generous person? The the old covenant says, okay, God, what is it, what is required? Is it 10%? Okay, let's be more precise. Is it 10% of my gross or my net? Like, tell me it's exactly 10%, and when do I give that 10%? But no, not the not the new covenant. Not someone with the new wine. We say, Every last cent I own belongs to Jesus. You know, Justin Martyr from the old back, uh, ancient Christian, that's what he said. He says, those still under the law, they're the ones that only give 10% of their income away. But we who have have freedom and the law has been fully filled by Jesus. Everything, nothing is off limits. Everything is is for Jesus. Jesus. See, when it says love, it says, okay, I'm going to do the acts of love that look good and gets other people's attention. That's what a Pharisee would do. Old Covenant says, okay, prescribe for me exactly what does love look like. But with someone who's got the new wine of Jesus inside, I'm saying anything for Jesus. Jesus, what would you do? Oh, you would love, as a good Samaritan, you would love someone who's completely different on opposite sides, politically, spiritually, ethnically. You you say love them, and not only just love them, but care for them. Give them my time. Give them my resources. It's not just love till it hurts. I will love beyond whatever it takes. That's the kind of love. That's the kind of love when it fills a Christian. They do crazy things that are alien to this world. Like they give up their lives and they go to a foreign mission field. Or they give up their homes and they bring a foreign mission field into their homes by bringing a foster, care, foster child in. Or they give up their vacation and they go on a mission trip. Or they give up their weekend and they find a way to serve. They give up their evenings and they, they come together and serve one another and pray for each other. See, that when that new wine fills the old wineskins, it will burst forward. You need a whole new framework. And it's anything for Jesus. How could I hold anything back from my Savior, Jesus? Because if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, a mathetase of Jesus, it's an entirely new category that is all centered around the groom. Can I ask you, can I ask you what it would look like if just, I mean, South Florida is filled with the church of South Florida is filled with so many beautiful expressions of the local church. And I think there's many churches running hard after this in our city, but let's just start with, with us, City Rev. What if, what if God poured the new wine into, our, into, our, into us, the, the new covenant, the freedom to want run after Jesus with all that we've got, unified around running after Jesus, centered on the person of Jesus, imagine what he could do. Imagine what he could do if we truly believed what he said about us. So thoroughly forgiven that we're a new creation with his love and his affection. Imagine that we could actually, as Paul prays in Ephesians, we actually could grasp the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of God's love for us because he's paid for our sins. He's risen us back to life. We were lost and dead in our sins. And he got down on his knees and he resuscitated us back to life. If we could actually believe we're something alien to this world and we offer up our lives to him, imagine what he could do with a people that gave themselves to Jesus. Imagine what he could do through us in our city. Imagine what we could see in our generation, in our city. Let's pray. Can we just take a moment of of prayerful reflection? Maybe there's some of you here that you've seen, maybe what's broken is there's some Christian things you're dabbling in, you show up at church every now and then, or maybe you're very consistent, but if you're honest inside, it's, it's just an external thing. Can you turn from that today? It's not just about dabbling in a little bit of Christian religion and adding a little bit of spiritual activity into your life. It's not that. It's something far more profound. Jesus wants to transform you, inside and out. Give yourself to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you say, "Look, I sometimes I just fall back into trying to work for God and to get His acceptance." And maybe you're here and you're saying, "Look, I." My heart's grown grown cold to Jesus. I I need to accept his love. Accept that he's accepted me. And maybe you say, look, would you, maybe you say, "I, I want you to pray for me. Would you pray that I recapture my first love? I capture a fire from Jesus. Make that where you turn your heart over to Jesus today. Whatever it is, if, if today is your day to, to turn back to you, some of you may turn back to Jesus. Some of you may be turning away from religion and turning to Jesus for the first time and letting Him make you new. And if that's you, would you make this your prayer? If you want to turn away from religion and turn to Jesus, not, you're saying, I'm not going to work to gain my... Salvation. I'm gonna embrace and accept the work Jesus did on my behalf to save me. He saved me. Pray this prayer right there, wherever you're at. Maybe you're at Cooper City or you're here at West Pines or online, just pray this. Say, Jesus, silently right there, say, Jesus, you saved me. I can't save myself. I can't make myself righteous. But you did all the work. And now you're going to transform me from the inside out. I welcome that in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you um, today put your faith in Jesus for the first time, what I want you to do, if you're here, I want you to go to the front lobby. There's a table there, guest services. I want you to go to that table. They will put a Bible in your hands. If you don't have a Bible, let that be our gift to you. If you're watching online, grab your cell phone, go to cityrev.org